Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. I'm Brandon Batson. I'm the producer of this podcast and the Communications and Connections Director here at Christ Church in New York City. I'm here with your host, the Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman, the Senior Minister here at Christ Church. Today, we welcome to the podcast Dr. Greg B. Jones. Vocationally, Dr. Jones currently serves as Pastor of Ministries and Christian Education at the Canaan Baptist Church of Christ in Harlem. He is also a campus chaplain and member of the Religious Life Department for the prestigious Lawrenceville School in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, and an adjunct professor in theology at UTS, the Interfaith Seminary in New York City. Dr. Jones recently joined us for a special Black History Month LGBTQIA ministry event, and we invited him to be on the podcast. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Greg B. Jones. I am really pleased uh, that I have the opportunity to speak with the Reverend Dr. Greg B. Jones. Uh, I had the privilege and the pleasure of hearing Greg tell some of his story on another occasion, and it occurred to me that he would make a really great conversation partner for this Chasing Faith podcast. He has uh, a compelling story and one that I believe should be shared widely. So I'm again really pleased, Greg. Thank you for thank you for joining me in conversation today. It's my pleasure, Stephen, and thank you for the invitation. And Brandon, nice to meet you, and thank you. I should also remind our listeners that this is a three way conversation, of course. And um, so, Greg, the way we normally begin is have people share a bit about their background and how it is that they came to have the faith they had. Uh, we'll, we'll hear some of that and maybe interject a question or two, but, but we want to hear how you've emerged spiritually. Okay. Well, that's easy. I was uh, born in New York City in Metropolitan Hospital, so I am a true New Yorker. Um, do I have to tell my year? <laughs> <laughs> That's up to you. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, born in born in Metropolitan Hospital, and um, at the ripe old age of about five years old, and and the way that I remember this, I'll tell uh, a little bit uh, more, is that my grandma Sarah Jane Frierson Jones, I always say her name, um, she decided <laughs> to take me and my sister from New York, from my mom, and take us down south to a place literally that never appeared on a map until Google. Um, each time I would look for Alkaloo, South Carolina, all you would see is Manning and Sumter and a line. That was it, right? <laughs> but So she took us down to uh, South Carolina to live with her and my grandfather, Edward, because she said she was rescuing us from city life, especially me, because I used to have constant nosebleeds, right? And um, she said she knew she had done the right thing because when we got to the border of South Carolina, the nosebleed stopped, right? So she said, yeah, I, re I rescued you, right? 
And so then, um, you know, invariably we had visited, you know, as I, when I was younger, you know, from a baby and so forth. And so at three years old, I remember her, even though we were visitors at the time, she would have us in church on, on Sunday, if we were there for a Sunday and then Sunday school. And of course, anytime, and we all, the whole family always visited at Christmas. And so at Christmas, you knew you were going to go to church and, and the kids were going to say recitations or in my case, I would sometimes, you know, say little recitations and then sing a song. And um, I wish if I could attribute it to my, you know, Christian, you know, sensitivity at that time. But basically it was because if I did a good job on my way back to my seat with my grandmother, all of the old folks of the church would have money in their hand. <laughs> and basically I loaded up my pocket on the way back to my seat because, you know, that was their, their way of encouraging me. And so, um, yeah, so growing up in this, this um, black Presbyterian church down in the country, as we called it, and just having, you know, my grandmother's, you know, wisdom as a part of my life all that time and, you know, the earth where we literally planted gardens and ate what, you know, they produced and, you know, and raised livestock and chicken and ducks, right? So a whole, li literally living off of the land. Um, so I had that as a, as a backdrop. And uh, of course, you know, church was literally across the road, across the dirt road. We would walk to church every Sunday probably I would say 500 feet or so. It literally was across the road. And I knew as a kid, I loved church. I loved being in that community. I loved the fact that I could go to, to Sunday school and it was an educational experience where I could challenge the teacher. Anytime there was a question and the hand was going up, it would be mine, right? Um, because I just, I just, I was just fascinated with knowing about this God that my grandma told us about, who created us, who loved us, who made us, and we were good creatures, but we're no better than anyone else. Um, and so, you know, that was that was in a nutshell my, uh, you know, foundation as it relates to my Christian faith. And um, I, I tell the story now that I'm a you know, a minister of the gospel and, you know, work in a faith community. Um, when people would ask me about, you know, my um, being born again, my being saved, you know, depending on the denomination, the vernacular changes. And I said, well, you know what? I just knew that I loved the Lord. Um, it was no, you know, Paul on, on, you know, Damascus Road event or anything like that. Um, one, one Saturday evening, as we were doing stuff around the house, grandma said to me, she says, you know, it's about time for you to join the church. And so guess what I did the next Sunday? <laughs> I went and I joined the church and this was like 14 years old. And, um, and yeah, and it's, you know, more than, more than one, you know, um, awesome event of transformation or change. I think, you know, the grace of God for me was just a gradual unveiling and and knowing and learning and uh, and that's what leads me to be who I am today you know interestingly I think I could say something quite similar I just always 
was aware of, for lack of a better word or set of words, I was always aware of the divine presence, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't have said it that way. I wouldn't have thought about it like that exactly then, but I just was aware. And uh, so I, yeah. I kind of get what you're saying there. So from from those from that childhood background, then how did then what happened? Well, um, you know, mixed in with all of that, all those experiences in in the country, you know, and so these folk basically knew me from you know the beginning, and with the recitations every you know ecclesiastical season with the singing, which of course became more prevalent because. Um, our minister of music, although she was at that time, that's not what we labeled her. She was just the pastor's wife, Miss Nelsie T. Johnson. She saw, <laughs> she saw yeah. my, um, yeah, we didn't get that term until what, the 70s, <laughs> 80s or something, right? Yeah, minister yeah, of music. Yeah. Um, but she was just the pastor's wife. She played piano and organ. Um, and we would, I mean, she recognized my aptitude in music. And so she, um, of course, had me in the choir singing tenor uh, until my until my voice changed, and then I became bass. Um, and uh, with my aptitude in music that she recognized, she de- she was determined I was going to learn piano, right? Because when I got into fifth grade, I went into um, junior high school and was in the band. Um, started out playing trombone, and I was a measly little four foot something and the trombone was actually taller and bigger than me. <laughs> and so imagine, you know, maneuvering that on the bus, but she was determined I was going to play piano and I wanted to so bad. You know, I don't have any regrets in life. I really don't. But if I had to tag one, it would be, I can't play piano. She tried so hard, but these fingers just would not commit. They would not. Um, and even even when I went to even when I went to Winston Salem State University and as a music major, and one of the proficiencies you had to do was you had to pass piano. Thank God for Professor Graves who decided, you know what? It's okay. I get it. I see you practicing all the time. You are just not ever going to play piano. So here's what I want you to do. Put on some headphones. And while all the other students are practicing the rudiments for the class, I want you to concentrate on the one piece that you're going to play before the faculty so that you can get out of the music department and get out of the school. And that's what I did. So all day long, you know, every class, that's all I played. And then finally, that's how I got my music degree. But uh, I'm fast forwarding in, in many ways. But yeah, so... I never learned to play piano, um, and um, a part of what um, you know is really foundational about my um, my Christian upbringing is that I, like you, like you said, I I loved church, I loved being in community of faith, um, and um, I, I recognize you know with the the old folks they would always say, oh, he's going to be a preacher. You know, they kept prophesying, he's going to be a preacher. Oh, he's going to be the next Martin Luther King, right? And so, you know, when you're when you're a kid, when you're a kid and you hear people, you know, speak that positively and that affirmatively about you, 
you sort of, you know, it, it helps to build your self-esteem. It helps to build mm. your sense of character and, and what you ascribe to. And so on the one hand, you know, being the normal, you know, junior high guy, teenager, you know, I go, oh, yeah, that's fine. Thank you. That's really nice. But on the other, you know, in my private moments, you know, yes, yeah, something was different. Something I felt, you know, my life was going to be led a different way than, you know, a lot of the folk that I, uh, that I, you know, were friends with and hung out with and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. 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 So was music uh, a part of your spiritual formation as well? Oh, absolutely. At the, yeah. Listen, I tell people all the time, I said, you know, sometimes, you know, in my low moments, you know, when I can't find a scripture that lifts me, let me have a song, right? Um, mm -hmm. And if you notice in the presentation that I did, um, you know, on Saturday, all of my references, for the most part, you know, were songs because right. they speak to me in a way. And I mean, I'm not, of course, um, not, uh, I don't have anything against scripture. I love, you know, what it affirms <laughs> well, that's for good. us. But yeah, <laughs> but I love what it affirms for us. But, you know, sometimes, you know, it's just, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't meet me where I am. Whereas right. a song always seems to do that. Yeah. I, I, do you remember that I was a music major as well? Do, did we ever talk I about did not. that? No. Yeah, I was a music major wow. as well. And you might need to know that Brandon is a musician as well. And his dad is a minister of music at a church. Wow. So, so okay. music, we've got music between us here. <laughs> That's excellent. And I would tell you that um, music was my deepest soul language. And it was mm -hmm. through music, it was really through music that I eventually, when I became a young adult, that awakened my heart deeply in the direction I finally took. It took mm -hmm. that awake, it took that awakening. Anyway. I love that, your soul language. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Miss Nelsie T. Johnson, one of the things I always say about her, like even even to this day when I talk to congregation at Canaan, is I said, we sang every song in the hymn book, every song. And so, if <laughs> you know, if you name if you name a hymn, I could probably finish the lyrics, you know, yeah. um, and yeah. I do that all the time. Because um, basically, in, in, you know, in most Baptist churches, we do a top 10, you know, we sing those throughout the year and that's about it. <laughs> Um, and so, but yeah, that's one of, and that's probably one of the things that, uh, you know, helped me to cultivate my soul language, um, at that early age. Yeah. Right. Mm. So, uh, and ac actually having heard your story, some of your story before, uh, I'm aware that from college, you ended up not going to seminary right away. Correct. Is that a correct right. statement? That's correct. So, and then, and, and you also had your own life self-awareness evolving along with that. Can you tell us something about that and that process? And then take us into how through that process you wound up in seminary as well. Sure. So um, in high school, um, I specifically remember one day in um, our PE class, physical education class, right? Um, yesterday we came we undressed, we played basketball, um, you know, you went to the showers and you 
um, got dressed and you went to your next class, right? This particular day, as we're getting dressed, I look over at my best friend and I go, wow, he is so good looking. And I go, wait a second, where did that come from? You know, and, and it was it was shocking in a way, a little disturbing. Um, but, you know, even even when I was like five, somewhere between five and seven years old, I, I just realized I was different. But of course, I couldn't categorize the difference because maybe it was I was going to be the next Martin Luther King or I was going to be a preacher or whatever, you <laughs> yes. know. Um, but then, you know, as I grew and understood, you know, my attraction to to men you know, it was something that I had to, um, for my own safety, um, sort of, you know, stow away so that other aspects of my personality could could bloom so that, you know, the, the kids who antagonize me on the school bus ride every day or, you know, in, uh, you know, in the, you know, different in the cafeteria, you know, that they would just leave me alone because then they would see, oh, Greg Jones. Yeah, he's cool. He's just whatever. Right. I was normal. I was, you know, an average kid mm. in their in their view. Um, but then, you know, inevitably you you come to this realization that you you can't live in this this, you know, this 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 atmosphere of turmoil, because that's really what it is when we're, we're not able mm. to fully disclose who we are. You know, everybody else with their faults, their their, you know, the positive attributes, their mistakes, their whatever, you know, they're fully disclosed, they're open and, and, you know, and, and you take what comes with life. But for, you know, those of us who gay or lesbian and, and trying to number one, understand ourselves and our lives, you know, in the midst of everything. And then, you know, having heaped on that with disclosure comes a lot of, you know, antagonism, a lot of, you know, strife that you have to bear. And so, I totally get people not wanting to come out, to disclose, to reveal who they are fully because you never know, you know, what the the repercussions might be. And so, um, so yeah, so. But those to, were the messages you were hearing in your community though, right? Yeah. Like you yeah, grew yeah, yeah. up hearing messages of like, this is wrong. This is not something that I can be and also be this. And see, the, the, thanks for that question, Brandon, because the funny thing is, you know, as a kid, I had never even heard anyone say anything mm. derogatorily against gay and lesbian people. We knew they were in the church. Um, and, and that, you know, small black community, Presbyterian community, all they wanted was your gift. They didn't care who you were. They wanted <laughs> yeah. your gift, meaning your talent, yeah. your contribution yeah. Yeah. to yeah. Mm-hmm. the community, right? <clears throat> and so it wasn't until I... Um, you know, went to Winston-Salem State University. And, you know, um, as I said, you know, in that that atmosphere, God bless it. It's a wonderful school. I loved it. It did so much for me and my own personal growth. But, you know, like most black college campuses, it, it was, you know, as as what we understand now, toxic masculinity was the, mm. you know, order of the day. And, and so, you know, in that period when most were, exploring their sexuality, I was just still questioning and I was still, you know, mm-hmm. wondering, um, you know, who do I tell? Who do I talk to? How do I be? You know, what do I display? And so it's all, yeah, yeah, that's that's a lot of work trying to, oh, yeah. you know, 
navigate the world and and wanting to be authentic, wanting to be just normal, everyday Greg, but having no avenue uh, to do that. So then came 1984 and the scholarship money ran out and um, I had to look for a place to be able to work and finish my education because that wasn't an option. I definitely wanted to finish my degree. And so moved back here, um, enrolled in Hunter College and started living with my aunt who uh, I called my second mom and my cousin who lived with her. And then all of a sudden there was like this bright beam. I was in New York and I found out that there was such a thing as a gay community. So I wasn't alone, right? Even mm. even in Alkaloo, as I tried to escape during my formative years, I kept, you know, traveling wherever I could. I went to Boggs Academy, which was a Presbyterian um, camp that they hosted for the summer. Three out of my four eligible years, I went there just to get away from Alkaloo and that whole um, environment. And, uh, you know, I would, anytime the church needed a delegate anywhere, a youth delegate, I volunteered so the church could send me, right? Because it meant I was in a, in a space at <laughs> least... I could I could yeah. believe that no one was going to pick on me or you know call me out of my name or try to you know um, just make my life difficult you know and um, mm. but yeah so back in New York and I find out that there's a community gay community and that there's a a, a town you know in my mind's eye called the village where gay people <laughs> reign and you know rainbows are. Are fly uh, in the sky, and you know, and ribbons fly everywhere, and people are just people, you know. Um, and so that was an awakening. That was an awakening that was affirming, um, while at the same time, you know, uh, a little disconcerting too, right? Because then you had to think about, well, who might see me in the village, right? What you know? What if uh, you know someone from church or someone in my corporate life now having a uh, gotten a job to, you know, finance my education. I would mm. um, work during the day, go to school at Hunter College at night. What if someone sees me and knows me, right? Um, so yeah, there's, yeah. Okay. Greg, let me ask, as you were going through this process of self-discovery and emergence, <clears throat> I'm interested if you were, the way I'll ask this is a little clunky, but mm -hmm. you'll, you'll get my meaning. Um, were you in conversation with God about it? Did you have, were you questioning your givenness as a gay man? Did you, was that a process you had to go through spiritually? No, I never See, that's did. A, that's I never, a really, yeah. I never, yeah, I never, I never questioned myself being gay because, you know, like I said, grandma told us we were created by God that God loved us just as we were. And so even when, you know, I understood myself as a gay man, I was like, well, okay, God, you did it. I, I mean, I don't know what else to do and what else to be, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I never, I never questioned that. And I think that's, that was one of the things that always gave me peace. Yeah, I can, even, I can imagine. Even as, even as, even as, I had to juggle what I would disclose to the world and to whom and when I had inner peace about it because 
yeah. hey, like I said, God, you know who I am. You know who you made. And so I can't be anything but. Right. Mm. What's interesting about that from the spiritual side of things is that so, so much of the time, so many of us take on our definitions from what other people say about us, as opposed mm -hmm. to listening deeply to our own interior. Perhaps, perhaps there was an advantage here that you had, which was uh, already that relationship with God, even as a small child, that, that mm -hmm. you were already found, as it were. Um, I just, it's an intriguing idea. I think it's something that would and, be useful. And I, you know, would too, be some, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, you, no, you go, you go. I, um, and, and, and the thing I thought about is that, you know, grandma never told me anything that was detrimental to me. I trusted her, right? I trusted her and my grandfather because I knew they loved me. And, and so she would not lie to me and say, God loves you just the way you are. God knows who God has created in you. And you are great as you are, but you're no better than anyone else. I had to trust and believe that. And so if I could believe her in all the other things, why not believe her in that as well? Oh, it's a beautiful thing. You were roundly affirmed, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in, yeah. your given, in your givenness. I find that extremely Brandy. interesting because, you know, I, I grew up in an environment where people were constantly told that who you are and who God made you <clears throat> somehow is is deficient and, mm -hmm. and that you're in constant need to lean on him to fix that deficient thing about you. You know, whether you're um, you're inherently sinful, there is no good in you at all, mm -hmm. you know, and so like someone who is LGBTQIA growing up in that environment, like everyone I know who I grew up with that is in that community, they have, will have nothing to do with church anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I can understand that. Um, and I, I just find that so interesting about your story that your community wasn't constantly speaking that into your life at all. And, and you were able to grab onto something, even that your grandmother said that grounded your entire faith journey. Mm -hmm. That was so positive and really pushing you not towards your community or even yourself, but to God. And like God has created you, God has grounded you. Mm -hmm. And that is what you rely on as you move forward in your faith journey. And I, I find that really interesting. Absolutely. And, and, and foreign. <laughs> and, and all those, you know, all those, all those people, you know, all that community who talking about being on the margins of life, they did, they had no money, they had no riches, no, all they had was each other. And then they saw their hopes in us, in the kids of that community, right? And I remember, I, I used to call him Grandpa Harry. Um, he lived to 93 and just died in his sleep peacefully. But like when I would go to school and be antagonized at school or on the bus, right? I knew on Sunday when I went to church and I saw Grandpa Harry and he was this huge guy. I mean, he looked like a giant to a kid, right? Um, but he was maybe six, four, six, five, tall, statuesque, handsome guy. And he would just bend down and give you the biggest hug, right? And it just felt like the world was encapsulating you when he hugged you. Right. And that you, you just never forget that you just never, ever let that go. No matter what comes, you know, no matter what you are up against, 
you know, you just, you just, you just never let that go. I, I can't yeah. explain it any other way. Yeah. Hmm. So you had um, a career before going to seminary. Tell me about that. And how'd you wind up in seminary? So um, when I, when I moved back to New York, um, the bank of New York, uh, who were transfer agents for Dreyfus Mutual Funds. Um, I sent my resume with nothing but my academic, you know, achievements, and they hired me sight unseen for a customer service position down on mm. uh, 90 Washington Street. I still remember because I was so <laughs> excited. I'm working downtown in Manhattan, right? Um, and that launched my corporate career. And um, um, and in the in the meantime, you know, I'm out there trying to understand my life again. I'm, you know, I've dated a couple of girls and realized, yeah, it's just, it's just not going to work. Right. Um, and working in corporate America at the time. And, um, then, uh, the week before my 30th birthday, I had this, this event uh, is all I can describe it. I don't, I have never disclosed it to anyone. And I will not disclose now, but it was my confirmation that I was being called to ministry. It absolutely positively assured me that all that my grandma had spoken about, all that the old folks down in in, uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church community was coming to pass. And so it, it didn't frighten me. I, you know, I always hear stories about people running away from the call. I didn't run anywhere. I said, okay, God, you know, mm-hmm. you know who I am and yet you're still going to call me to this vocation. I, you know, why, why me? And, you know, and on every turn, every time I, you know, looked into what this meant or try to see what I could be as a minister, um, you know, what would it entail for me to live up to this calling? Like at every turn, I just, I, as, as if the confirmation came, well, I called you precisely because of who you are. And so, you know, what else What else do you do when you have that kind of confirmation? You see what I'm saying? It's the same. It's mm-hmm. like uh, affirmation as a kid, affirmation through high school, affirmation now as an adult being called into the gospel ministry. And and I think, you know, many times I've, I've thought about it and I go, wow. So I have no excuse for any failure in my life. None. I can't, I can't ever, whatever I don't achieve, it's because, Greg, you just goofed up. It's, it's not because all those who believed in you, including the God of all creation, that you know they did not come through to give you the support and the affirmation that you need. So it's totally up to you. So... I'm not since since it seems to be an intensely private thing that happened. I'm not going to quiz you about it, other than to ask: this was an intensely spiritual intervention of a certain sort. It was yes, a spiritual intervention okay. and confirmation. Absolutely, yeah. okay, absolutely. And that sets you on a journey to seminary, right? And so, you know, it's it's hard to talk about life because, of course. Things all yeah. happen in confluence, right? And understand, so, understand. <clears throat> so I met, I met and fell in love with this wonderful girl 
beautiful girl who still remains a friend today. Oh, and by the way, um, after she <laughs> heard me on the uh, the presentation, she called me that evening and she goes, you know, everything you said in your presentation was true except one thing. And I go, really? I, I said, I, I misspoke what? She says, you know, I was upset when you, when we broke up, she says, but I wasn't heartbroken. <laughs> and I go, okay. I said, you weren't? And she goes, no. She says, I, I sort of knew. She says, I sort of knew. Um, and I was waiting for you to, to, to tell me, you know, when you finally revealed your truth. I said, well, I don't know how I should feel that you weren't heartbroken, that you couldn't love me, that, you know, that I couldn't love you in the way you wanted. And she goes, boy, please. It was fine. It was fine. Right. And so. Um, so close so, yeah. to Valentine's Day. Too. I know. I know. And so. And so. So, yeah. So there was that. And in that relationship, she led me to Canaan. Right. Um, and Canaan, Just for our list, for our listeners sake, that's Canaan Baptist Church. Right. Canaan Baptist Church of Christ in Harlem. Right. At the time, the Reverend Dr. Wyatt T. Walker was the yes. um, pastor um, and he um, perhaps, you know, was a civil rights icon who was the yes. chief of staff to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. And so so in that that first Sunday in 1984. When I walked in there and the person that I read about in my history books at Winston-Salem State University, I see him in the pulpit and I, I couldn't contain myself. And the thing, the thing that, you know, you're talking about my influences in ministry is that I saw, I saw in him what was possible as a minister of the gospel. Here he was, tall like me, sleek like me, right? <laughs> Handsome, yes. I hope like me, but so polished and so charismatic and so biblically astute and so just profound in his preaching. And, and as he always said, you know, unapologetically black and proudly Christian, right? Mm -hmm. And I go, wow, that is what I could be. That is what I can mm -hmm. be. Right. And so there was that. Um, and and then, of course, you know, once I uh, told him about my call to ministry and he says, OK, well, here's what ministry involves. Here's how you should prepare. And he recommended that I go to New York Theological Seminary, who had a wonderful program right, to get my feet wet, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, in Christian education and urban ministry. I went and I didn't want to leave when class was over. That's how enlightening and affirming and just intellectually exciting it was for me. Um, and from there, uh, uh, Professor Dale Irvin, who was a, a former, um, he became actually president of New York Theological Seminary at one point, right? On, I remember um, one class as we were leaving and he, he made a statement. He says, you know, there are some of you in this class who show great promise in ministry. And I want to encourage you, don't let this, you know, when you graduate, don't leave here with just a, you know, New York Theological Seminary certificate. He says, I encourage you to go and pursue other education, right? And so as I was leaving, 
he says, Greg, can I uh, speak to you for a second? I said, sure. So he pulls me over and he says, um, that statement I made about promise and ministry, that was you. Go apply to Princeton Theological Seminary. And I go, wow. Okay. Right? So I did. And I remember um, in, the, in the essay that I wrote, I, of course, talked about my grandma as one of my spiritual influences. And then I said, you know, I really, I, I really did. I was like, Princeton Theological Seminary, me, a boy who was raised in Alkaloo, South Carolina, raising ducks and chicken and pigs, <laughs> me at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I go, right. And I had a dream that night that my grandma in the dream came to me and said, Greg, or Gregory, as she always called me, my boy. She says, you go and apply to Princeton Seminary. She said, the way has already been paved for you. And I woke up. And so in the, in the essay, I talked about that. And I said, you know, my question was, why me? And I said, but my grandma told me, why not me? And that's the reason mm-hmm. I got to um, Princeton Seminary. And um, yeah. Were you disclosed um, in your personhood at, at seminary? I want to say yes, but I'm not fully sure. And here's why. Because um, I was a part of any efforts related to theology and gay and lesbian community. Um, um, I concentrated on being um, an astute student and getting everything I can out of class. I talked about and registered in classes related to theology that, um, that uh, you know, dealt with gay and lesbian issues. Um, but there was no formal, like, coming out process, if you will. I was right. just another student among the masses. People who were on campus knew I was gay. Um, I didn't hide it. You know, right. I didn't date anyone there. I mean, I'm, a, I'm just a, a strange bird, I think, because in academic settings, I'm about the learning. I'm not about the, you know, dating and all that kind of stuff. I left that behind until I had nothing else to concentrate on, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, because I didn't, I didn't date at Winston-Salem State University. I didn't date at Hunter College. Um, and so, yeah, and seminary yeah. was just being me. Did you have, tell me about the environment of being in church, a professional in church, and being a gay man. That um, was and is difficult. It is, right? Um, with Dr. Walker, um, when, I, when I heard him a couple of Sundays, you know, he would say some things that were just not, they were not cool, Right. Um, sort of, you know, definitely homophobic, but I, I also thought it was, um, uninformed. Right. Right. And so I went to him and I say, Hey, I said, doc, you know, that thing you said about, um, you know, those guys being sissies, I said that, you know, I don't think that's cool at all. And he's like, well, you know, it it is the Bible and, you know, how most people automatically fall back on that. I said, well, can I, can I? come meet with you, right, on Tuesday evening or whatever, right? And he says, yeah, yeah, come on by. I'll be here. 
And so then I went and I told him, I said, hey, listen, there's someone on your pastoral staff who is a gay man, right? And I said, and it's me. And I said, so I, I felt I needed to talk to you to let you know that when you say things like that, basically it's an affront to me. And I don't, I don't believe you dislike me in such a way that you would ever want to hurt me with your words. And especially in the context of saying that it's coming as a, 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 a preachment from the gospels, right? Yeah. And he says, okay. He says, okay, well, I, I appreciate you um, being so open and honest and, and, uh, and we'll work on it. We'll work on, you know, this relationship and work on my ministry and, so then, um, so then, um, that was like I said, 1984, 1985, and it took 14 years of me just being who I was, being in the community, being in the congregation, and um, and I and I knew so many people, so many people in the congregation, in the church, who were gay or lesbian, and who basically they sat in silence. Um, they never mm, yes. um, offered their gifts in any ministries or anything because they just were afraid. And so I knew me being on the pastoral staff, I had to I had to find ways at least to, um, you know, let them know that someone saw them, someone heard them, someone understood. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I just I just had to be that emblem you know, um, for, for others who were in the, in the congregation. Yeah. Well, it's a powerful and a prophetic role to play. You know, I, I, again, I, I've forgotten what we have talked about in the past, but my son is gay Mm -hmm. and he went to union theological seminary Mm -hmm. and, uh, because he was thinking about, um, ordination in some form or fashion. He wasn't entirely sure. And he came there a bit, later after college, not a lot, but some. Anyway, there came this day at one point when he quietly said to me, "Um, Dad, you know, it is extremely difficult to know that the church in which you grew up does not want you. Mm -hmm. That's how he framed it, because, of Mm -hmm. course, the United Methodist Church at that time was still... uh, officially opposed to ordaining homosexual persons Mm -hmm. who were, quote, um, you know, self-professed, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know from that side of it as a parent, knowing the the great sense of hurt and dislocation that comes when you finally wake up to the fact that people are not actually wanting you. And that's the way he framed it in his own experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was quite a few years ago, and he has moved along. He became a chaplain for a while, and he's done other things. But he's also now active in his own Episcopal church here in, in lower Manhattan. That's um, wonderful. That's wonderful. But, but it's that idea of rejection that he was experiencing. I, I, I'm so intrigued by the counterpoint you have to that in which the world in which you grew up, you did not experience rejection. You experienced affirmation. And I'm, I'm struck by, remember, yes, yes, no, no, no. I understand. understand. Mm -hmm. But that, but 
yes, this is not a, <laughs> I get what you're, I get that part of the story, mm-hmm. but I get your own self-assurance to have that conversation with Wyatt T. Walker mm-hmm. is, is uh, something worth paying attention to. You had an inner assurance and confidence about who you were as a gay Christian man. And, yeah. and, and, you know, my, I, I always ask myself in situations, what's the worst that can happen, right? Yep. And yep. the worst that could have happened perhaps was he goes, okay, get out of my church. You're no longer on the pastoral staff. Be gone, right? And I right. said, okay, and if he said that, then what would I do? I would leave. I would go live my life. I would still be connected to the faith that my ancestors traditions to me, as Paul would say, and I would just live with it and continue to be who I am, right? But because I knew, I knew this man who um, was a justice hero somewhere in him and somewhere through my relationship with him, there was compassion enough to provide at least understanding if, if not anything more. He would have to understand me, right? And so then, um, uh, you know, years later, um, the, the uh, liturgist and chief of staff at the time, Dr. Perry uh, Hopper, got married and moved away to another um, parish somewhere in Pennsylvania. And so then Dr. Walker came to me to ask me, he says, you know what, I want you to be liturgist and chief of staff to replace Perry. And I go, can I think about it? <laughs> and he says, yeah, you can think about it, but, you know, uh, I want to know something, right? Don't just leave me hanging. And so then when I when I went back and I said, you know, Pastor Walker, I said, no, I don't think I'm, I'm going to do that. He says, why not? I said, well, I really don't have an answer, but I just know I shouldn't. And he says, okay. And then, like, probably two weeks later, he goes, I really need you to think about whether or not you're going to be liturgist and chief of pastoral staff. And he did this four times on the fourth time. I said, Pastor Walker, just tell me this. Why do you want me? He says, because I know you'll be truthful. He says, I know you will represent the congregation and we'd be be proud of your leadership. He says, and I know that you have a sharp biblical mind that will propagate the gospel in a way that will be amazing and grow this congregation. And he says, so I'm asking you for the last time, will you be (laughs) liturgist and and chief of staff? And I said, okay. (laughs) So things evolve. Things evolved. And, and the thing that I love about him, because he evolved, right? Yes, and yes. the thing that I loved about, I love about him, because I, re- I remember right, early on after I had told him that I, uh, I was gay and I had gotten this invitation to preach at the Princeton University Chapel, right? Not seminary. This is the university chapel. Right. This is where, you know, people like Foss Dick and um, Martin Luther King and all these people, mm-hmm. you know, and I got an invitation to preach on Pride Sunday. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm taking it, you know. And um, and so I went to him to tell him, and he goes, oh okay, I'd be interested to see what you're going to say. Um, and I said, okay, I'll let you see my sermon, right? And I I did a sermon based on 
the an interpretation of that song by Amy Grant, Love of Another Kind, right? Which I also did um, my dissertation topic on. And he goes, okay, was all he said, right? And I knew what that meant. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to say I agree, but, you know, if this is what you're going to preach, then go ahead and preach it, right? So from that to the point where after I was in, you know, I fell in love with this wonderful guy that I thought we were going to be together for life. Right. And I introduced him to Pastor Walker. He came with me to all the church outings. He attended Canaan, the whole bit. Right. Every conversation that I had meeting with him um, at his home, um, he suffered two strokes a year apart. And every week I would go on the weekend to talk about the life of the church and, you know, anything that he wanted me to implement or any special notices or anything. And we just have fellowship together, me, him, and sometimes Mrs. Walker would make a meal. Sometimes I would order it or bring a meal that we sat and shared and we just talked. And every conversation for two years and until he died three years ago, he always asked about my ex-partner, always asked about him, right? Talk about my life, talk about what's important to me, making sure I'm healthy and happy in the whole bit. And, and, you know, and, and I, I just, that's what love is. That's what true love is. Someone who loves you, right? They, they are invested in you in a sense that they want to know what's happening with you. How are you doing? Who is it that you love? Are they treating you well? All those things and so much more. And so that's the transformation I had with him, which again was so affirming, so affirming yeah. that, you know, my life at, at Canaan, even when they wanted to, on one Sunday, run me out of the church and you need to go and find something else to do instead of doing some doctoral thing here and talking about some uh, uh, constitutional uh, law coming from the Supreme Court about gay sex, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> um, what denomination is Canaan Baptist? It is Progressive National Baptist. It's Progressive National Baptist. Isn't Is that ironic? A, yes. <laughs> I understand. Well, these names, you know, United yeah. Methodist. Yeah. So <laughs> um, is there a stance on uh, homosexuality in the Progressive National Baptist Church? Not a formal one. Not a formal one. No. Okay. No. In fact, um, if we still have, do we still have time for other stories? Yeah, we have okay. a little time. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so when Dr. Walker was going through this period of recuperation from the strokes, right, it just so happened that there was a progressive National Baptist Convention happening. Um, I can't remember where now, but um, and I remember going because I had to, of course, as the interim pastor during the time, I had to represent Canaan along with, you know, the delegates, you know, the whole convention. So. Yeah. So then um, I'm listening for these three out of uh, the four days that we were there. All these speakers, they get up and, you know, they're praising the Lord and thank you, Jesus. And, oh, what a mighty God we serve. But then everybody transitioned into, and, you know, this country is on its way to hell because they're talking about gay and lesbian uh, folk. Uh, being married and, and all of this kind of stuff, you know, and almost everybody got up and I'm like, well, how do you get from 
Thank you, Jesus, and praise the Lord. And what a mighty God we serve to damning gay and lesbian people to hell. How do you do that? What's the connection, right? right. And so there was only one speaker, and it's named Vernon Jordan, oh, who had yeah. gotten invited as a keynote speaker. Um, and on the night that he spoke, he talked about how, um, you know, you're you're here in this convention, and I've been hearing some disturbing things, right? He says because when you talk about being a community of faith and being the body of Christ, you know, the body, as the Apostle Paul says, has many members, and basically he was he he talked about how. You, you can't use that language and call yourself the body of Christ, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it just does not square up. And so later that evening, I had to speak on behalf of Dr. Walker. And all those three, three, three days leading up to that fourth day when I had to accept this award on behalf of Canaan Baptist Church of Christ and make a statement, because I asked him, Doc, what do you want me to say? Tell me what you want me to say. He says, no, I trust you to say I'm like, but no, this is your award. Tell me what you want me to say. And he would not. He would not give me any words to say. So then I'm there in the shower that morning. And I'm, I'm literally just racking my brain. What do I do? What do I say? And I, I need to write something down because I'm a, I'm a reader. I need to see what I'm going to say. I don't impromptu well, right? And I, it's like I heard this voice say, Say what you know is right. And I go, oh, my God. And <laughs> say what you know is right. So I got out of the shower, sat down at my little laptop computer, typed out my words. And one of the, the themes that I had heard during this, this convention was they kept talking about this this uh, alliteration of the least, the lonely, the left out, right? They kept, oh, we thank God and we praise God that we're a convention who looks after the least, the lonely, and the left out. And uh, <laughs> thank God for all the ways that we are blessing people across the globe and across the world, you know, in this country and across the world because of the least, the lonely, and the left out, right? And so, Sounds like they set you up. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. pretty much. And yeah. so I got up and I, you know, I said, you know, on behalf of Canaan Baptist Church of Christ and especially Reverend Dr. Wyatt T. Walker, I thank you for this honor. Um, as we say at Canaan, when you go up, Canaan goes up. And so you have lifted not only our senior pastor, but you lift all of us. Right. And so then I said, you know, and on behalf of Canaan and because Dr. Walker has empowered me to speak on his behalf. I want you all to know I agree with you that anything we do in ministry should be toward looking after those whom Jesus says are the ones on the margins, right? Who the Old Testament says are the orphans, the widow and the strangers, those who, uh, uh, who really need the help of society. I said, and I just want you to know that even as you talk about the least, the lonely and the left out, they sit among you. We are here. And they are your gay and lesbian brothers and sisters because that's exactly what you have resigned us to be. 
right? You heard, right? All the, the grumbling, right? And I said, it's okay. I said, it's okay. It's true. It's true. We sit right among you. And yet the only affirming word that we've heard in these four days has come from brother Vernon Jordan. And I thank him for that. So please, Progressive National Baptist Convention, brothers and sisters, if that we if that's what we're you know trying to aspire to be, don't forget those who are truly least lonely and left out who are among us. Yeah, yeah, that's a powerful world word. And uh, once again, your own inner self awareness, confidence, sense of self, uh, rooted in your faith. Uh, is impressive and and mm-hmm. gives you clarity, you know, as an outside observer hearing this story, as mm-hmm. an outside listener, it uh, gives you the clarity and courage to say, as you said, what is true, what is in fact true. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, we are kind of coming up on a on a end point on in this conversation, and I again want to thank you for it. Is there something? that would be important for us to hear, for the listeners to hear you say that we haven't asked about um, anything that comes to your mind, Greg, that would be, you know. Well, I, I just, I just believe that, um, you know, when it comes to the Christian community, you know, we, I I think a lot of what we find in the way that, um, we neglect and try to make invisible those among us who are of LGBTQIA is just fear. It's fear. And I mean, in, in, in relationship, once you get to know people and, and you have to, you have to break the bond of fear by getting to know the individual, which is, I think the transformative power that happens in that relationship, because once you once you get to know me, I think you're going to care about me. And once you care about me, you're going to love me. Right. And, and I'm saying me in the general sense, because that's that's what relationship is. Um, and that's one of the lessons that Canaan has come to learn and is still learning. Um, I, I talked about in my presentation the the community at the People's United Methodist Church. And uh, by the way, um, Reverend Quinlan sends her regards because she says she knows you. Yes. She's yes. preached at uh, at uh, Christ Church before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in 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 that congregation, in that community of faith, it was them getting to know the people in their community who had never disclosed, who sat among them. But to have them open and honest and talk about the hurt that they experienced just from things that they heard about themselves or heard other people saying about LGBTQIA people. And it made all the difference, all the difference. One of the I remember one of the um, participants, she talked about her cousin um, while her cousin was in the room. And she talked about how she felt so badly that they grew up together like sisters. And then when she started to hear rumors about her cousin being a lesbian and hanging out with you know certain people that she distanced herself. And she says, and you know what? She says, I, I may have hurt her, but more than anything, I hurt me. She says, my heart was broken by what I did because I didn't trust myself enough to go to my own cousin who grew up like a sister to me and say, hey, you know what? 
I love you and I don't care what people are saying. I don't want to lose this relationship that we have. And that's where I think the breach can be repaired, um, where things can, transformation can happen within the Christian community. All we need to do is reach out. Don't make them the other, the, the I vow, right? Make them the ones that we love, that we embrace, that we make visible because of their gifts and their ability to, uh, to just be a part of community. That's all people want, to be validated, to know that they matter, and to be loved. Yeah. That's good. Well, Greg, I hear your, your uh, voice, your transparency, your passion, your clarity as a gift to the church. And uh, as I said the other night when I was hearing your story, um, I hope that increasingly you have avenues in which to share it. And this is one, but I'm, I hope that uh, you have opportunity to be a prophet uh, to your church and to the wider church um, and wish you well and ask uh, that God will bless you as you move into the future. Thank you so much, Steve. I um, I have hope, right? I, I have eternal hope that, um, you know, in spite of the atmosphere that I sometimes find myself in, um, and perhaps this venue will lead to other things because you asked me the other night, um, you know, how come you, have you ever told this story before? And my answer yeah. was no, because no one's ever asked. No yeah. one's ever asked. Right. Um, and so I, I look forward to any avenue that might open up. And the story is what it is. It is my truth. Um, and I don't know anything other. I really don't. And well, perhaps you. you'll, yeah, perhaps you'll have opportunity to share this conversation in a, in a wide arc. And we will as well. And uh, I look forward to hearing more. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you thank so you, much Greg. for this opportunity, Stephen. And thank, thank you, Greg. Brandon. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for joining us.